Gold in the Sky, Part Six of Five Stories by Alan Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. They did not pause even to catch their breath for the first twenty minutes as Tom led them swiftly and silently down the maze of corridors and chutes that made up the ventilation system of the huge ship. Greg lost his bearing completely in the first twenty seconds. Each time his brother paused at a junction of tubes, he felt a wave of panic rise up in his throat. Suppose they lost themselves in here. He heard Johnny's trousers flapping behind him and saw Tom's figure flit past another grill up ahead and plunge doggedly on. It was amazingly hard to move quietly. Even in stocking feet they made a soft thud with each footfall. There was no sign of detection, no sound of alarm. Finally they came out into a large shaft which allowed them to stand upright, and they stopped to catch their breath. "'Main tube in the living quarters,' Tom said, when they had caught up to him. "'Joins with the lower-level tube by a series of chutes. We've actually been circumnavigating the ship. I wanted to get as far away from that lounge compartment as possible, in case they check up on you right away.' "'We can't have much time,' Johnny said. "'That second guard must have been coming to relieve the other.' and when the first one doesn't report back, they'll smell something fishy." They talked it over for a moment. Johnny had been careful to leave the hatchway into the corridor ajar before he climbed into the elevator shaft, and then he pulled the shaft snugly into place behind him. Anyone who came would find two unconscious guards, a burned-out hole in the wall, and the door unlocked. "'We'll hope that he takes things at face value, and assumes we're at large in the ship somewhere, for a while at least. Johnny said. That hole in the wall is going to set them back a couple of steps, too. But they'll sound the alarm, at least, Tom said. You bet they will. They'll have every man on the crew shaking down the ship for us. But they may not think of the ventilators until they can't find us anywhere else. But sooner or later they're bound to think of it. That's true, Johnny said, unless they keep seeing us in the ship. The way I figure it, this crew has been on battle stations plenty of times. They'll be able to search the whole ship in a half an hour. We're just going to have to show ourselves, at least enough to keep them searching. Well, what if they do think of the ventilators? Greg said. They'll still have a time finding us. Maybe, but don't underestimate Tawny. He might just mask up his crew and flood the tubes with cyanide. They thought about that for a minute. There was no sound here but their own breathing, and the low chug-chug-chug of the pumps somewhere deep in the ship. Momentarily they expected to hear the raucous clang of the alarm bell, as some crew member or another walked into the lounge and found them gone. But so far there was no sign that they had been discovered missing. No, Johnny said finally. If we just hide out in here and hope for a chance that one of the scout ships... They'll find us eventually. But we've got three big advantages, if we can figure out how to use them. That fancy gun, for one a way to get around the ship for another, and the fact that there's one more of us than they could count on." He flipped on his pocket flash and began drawing lines on the dusty floor of the shaft. "'My idea is to keep them so busy fighting little fires that they won't have a chance to worry about where the big one is.' He drew a rough outline sketch of the organization of the ship. "'This look right to you, from what you've seen?' he asked Tom. "'Pretty much,' Tom said. "'There are more connecting tubes.' All the better. We want to get the generators with our little toy here first. That'll darken the ship, and put the blowers out of commission in case they think of using gas. Also, it will cut out their computers and missile launching rigs, which might give us a chance to get a scout ship away in one piece if we could get aboard one. 
All right, the generators are first, Tom said. But then what? There are four hundred men on this ship. They'll have every airlock triple guarded. They'll block us for sure. Not when we get through they won't, Johnny grinned. We've got an old friend aboard who's going to help us. Friend? Ever hear of panic? Johnny said. Just listen a minute. Quickly then, he outlined his plan. Tom and Greg listened, watched Johnny make marks with his finger in the dust. When he finished, Greg whistled softly. You missed your life work, he said. You should have gone into crime, Johnny said. It's perfect, Tom said. If it works. But it all depends on one thing. Keep it rolling after we start. For another five minutes they went over the details. Then Johnny clapped them each on the shoulder. It's up to you two, he said. Let's go. They moved down the large shaft to the place where it broke into several spurs. Johnny started down the chute toward the engine rooms. Tom and Greg headed in opposite directions toward the main body of the ship. Just as they broke up, they heard a muffled metallic sound from the nearest compartment grill. It was the clang-clang-clanging of the orbit ship's general alarm. Crewmen stopped with food halfway to their mouths, jerked away from the tables. Orders buzzed along a dozen wires, and section chiefs began reporting their battle stations alert and ready. Finally, Tawney snapped on the general public address system speaker. "'Now get this,' he roared. I want every inch of this ship searched, every corridor, every compartment. I want a special crew standing by for missile launching. I want double guards at every airlock. If they get a ship away from here, the man who lets them through had better be dead when I find him." He broke off, clutching the speaker until his voice was under control again. "'All right. Move. They're armed, but there's no place where they can go. Find them.' A section chief came back over the speaker. "'Dead or alive, boss?' alive you idiot at least the hunter brat i'll take the other one any way you can get him he switched off and waited pacing the control cabin like a caged animal ten minutes later a buzzer sounded hydrophonics boss all clear no sign of them nothing another buzz number seven orehold nothing here still another buzz cruise quarters nothing boss one by one the reports came in fuming Tawney checked off the sections, watched the net draw tighter throughout the ship. They were somewhere. They had to be. But nobody seemed to find them. He was buzzing for his first mate when the power went off. The lights went out. The speaker went dead in his hand. The computer sighed contentedly and stopped computing. Abruptly, the emergency circuits went into operation, flooding the darkness with harsh white lights. The intercom started buzzing again. Engine room, boss. What happened down there? Tawney roared. The man sounded like he had just run the mile. Generators, he panted. Blown out. Well, get somebody in there to fix them. Have a crew seal off the area. Can't, boss. Fix them, I mean. Why not? What have we got electricians for? There's nothing left to fix. The generators aren't wrecked. They're demolished. Then get the pair that did it. They're not here. We've been sealed up tight. There's no way anybody could have gotten in here. After that, things began to get confusing. For a while, Merrill Tawney thought that his crew was going crazy, and then he began to wonder if he were the one that was losing his mind. Whatever the case, Merrill Tawney was certain of one thing. The things that were happening on his orbit ship could not possibly be happening. A guard in one of the outer shell storage holds called in with a disquieting report. 
Greg Hunter, it seemed, had just been spotted vanishing into one of the storage compartments from the main outer shell corridor. When the guard had broken through the jammed hatchway to collar his trapped victim, there was no sign of the victim anywhere around. At the same moment, a report came in from a guard on the opposite side of the ship. He had just spotted Greg Hunter there. It seemed moving down a spur corridor. The guard had held his fire, according to Tawney's orders, and summoned help to corner the quarry. But when help arrived, the quarry had vanished. Five minutes later, the hunter boy was discovered in the hydrophonic section, busily reducing all the yeast vats to shambles with a curious weapon that seemed to eat holes in things. He ate the deck out from under the guard's feet, sending him plunging through the floor into the galley. By the time he had scrambled back again, the hunter boy was gone, and a rapid move to seal off the region failed to turn him up again. The guard was upset. Tawney was a great deal more upset, because at the time Greg Hunter was, reportedly, playing havoc with the yeast vats in hydrophonics, he was also, reportedly, knocking guards down like ten-pins in the main corridor off the engine room, while reinforcements tried to pin him down with a wide-beam stunner. Quite suddenly, emergency circuits closed, and lights flashed in the control cabin, the special signal for a meteor collision with the outer shell in number three hold. Tawney signaled for the section chief frantically. "'What's happening down there?' "'I can't talk,' the section chief gasped. "'Gotta get into a suit. We're leaking in here.' "'Well, plug up the hole. The hole is four feet wide, sir.' There was a fit of coughing, and the contact broke. The signals for number four hold and number five hold were flashing now, while the crew members in the vicinity scrambled for pressure suits, someone systematically proceeded to blow holes in number nine, number ten, number eleven holds. It was impossible. The reports came in thick and fast. Greg Hunter was in two places at once, and everywhere he went, in both places, there was a trail of unbelievable destruction. Bulkheads demolished, gaping holes torn in the outer shell, the air-conditioning unit smashed beyond repair. Tawney buzzed for his first mate. An emergency switch cut into the line with the frantic voice of a section chief. Johnny Coombs had been spotted disappearing into the ventilator shaft in the engine sector. "'Well, go in after him!' Tawney screamed. He got his first mate finally and snarled orders into the speaker. "'They're in the ventilators! Get a crew in there and stop them!' But it was dark in the ventilator shafts. No emergency lights in there. Worse, the crewmen were hearing the things that were being whispered around the ship. The ventilator shafts yawned menacingly before them. They went in reluctantly. Once in the dark maze of tunnels, identification was difficult. Two guards met each other headlong in the darkness, and put each other out of the fight in a flurry of nervous stunner fire. While they searched, more of the holes were broken open, leaking air through gapping rents in the hall. Tawney felt the panic spreading. He tried to curb it, and it spread in spite of him. The fugitives were appearing and disappearing like race. Reports back to the control cabin took on a frantic note, confused and garbled. Now the second-level bulkheads were being attacked. Over a third of the compartments were leaking precious air into outer space. When a terrified section chief came through with a report that two Greg Hunters had been spotted by the same man at the same time, and that the guards in the sector were shooting at anything that moved, including other guards. Tawney made his way to the radio cabin and put through a frantic signal to Jupiter Equilateral headquarters on Mars. 
the contact took forever even with the ship's powerful emergency boosters by the time someone at headquarters was reading him tawney's report sounded confused he was trying for the third time to explain clearly and logically how two men and a ghost were scuttling his orbit ship under his very feet when one wall of the cabin vanished in a crackle of blue fire and he found himself staring at two greg hunters and a grim-faced johnny coombs he made squeaking noises into the microphone and dropped it with a crash he groped for a chair johnny jerked him to his feet again a scout ship he said tersely clear it for launching we want one with plenty of fuel and we don't want a single guard anywhere near the airlock he picked up an intercom microphone and thrust it into the little fat man's trembling hand now move and you better make sure they understand you because you're coming with us merrill tawney stared first at tom and then at greg and finally at the microphone then he moved the orders he gave to his section chiefs were very clear and concise he had never argued with a ghost before and he didn't care to start now it was over so quickly that it seemed to tom it had just begun and if so much had not been at stake it might have been fun it had been the gun the remarkable gun that roger hunter had left as his legacy that had been the key it ate through steel and aluminum alloy like putty whatever its power source however it worked by whatever means it had been built there had been no match for it on the orbit ship it had worked and that was all that mattered right then with it and with the advantage of a ghost that walked like a man tom hunter to be exact they had reduced the jupiter equilateral orbit ship to a smoking wreck in something less than thirty minutes the signal came back that a scout ship was ready unguarded johnny prodded tawney with the stunner you first he said but where are you taking me you'll see johnny said it was a trick tawney said glaring at tom they told me they shot your ship to pieces the ship yes tom said not me well well that's good that's good tawney said quickly he turned to greg you don't have to take me back the bargain is still good move johnny coombs said with tawney between them greg and tom marched down the corridor toward the airlock with johnny bringing up the rear no one stopped them no one even came near them one crew member stumbled on them in the corridor he saw tawney with a gun in his back and fled in terror they found the scout ship and strapped tawney down to an acceleration bunk binding his hands and feet so he couldn't move greg checked the controls while tom and johnny strapped down a moment later the engines fired and the leaking wreck of the orbit ship fell away dwindling and disappearing in the blackness of space it was a quiet journey the red dot that was mars grew larger every hour one of the three stayed awake at all times to watch tawney while the others slept during the second rest period tom woke up while greg was on duty how's our prisoner doing tom asked no problem there he can barely move i almost wish he'd try something he's too quiet it was true tawney had recovered from his shock but rather than grow more worried as mars grew on the screen he seemed to become more cheerful by the minute he doesn't seem very worried does he tom said no and it doesn't quite add we've got enough on him to get jupiter equilateral pushed right out of the belt i'd still feel better if we had the whole picture for the major tom said we still don't know what dad found or where he hid it uneasiness grew tawney ignored them staring at the image of the red planet on the view screen almost eagerly then eight hours out of sun lake city 
a u.n patrol ship appeared moving toward them swiftly intercepting orbit greg said looks like they're waiting for us they watched as the big ship moved in tangential orbit matching its speed to theirs then greg snapped the communicator switch sound off he said cheerfully we've got a surprise for you stand by we're boarding you the patrol sent back and put your weapons aside four scooters broke from the side of the patrol ship greg activated the airlock five minutes later a man in patrol uniform with captain's bars stepped into the cabin a stunner ready in his hand three patrolmen came in behind him the captain looked around the cabin and then saw tawney and took a deep breath well thank the stars you're safe at any rate pete jimmy take the controls hold on greg said we don't need a pilot the captain looked at him sorry but we're taking you in there won't be any trouble unless you make it you three are under arrest and i'm authorized to make it stick if i have to i suggest you just cooperate they stared at him and then johnny said what are the charges you ought to know the captain said we have a formal complaint from the main offices of jupiter equilateral charging you with piracy murder kidnapping of a company official and totally wrecking a company orbit ship i don't see how you managed it but we're going to find out in short order there was a stunned silence in the cabin and then a sound came from the rear of the cabin merrill tawney was laughing they were taken into a small drab internment room a half an hour passed and still no word from the major from the moment the patrol crew had boarded them everything had seemed like a bad dream the shock of the arrest the realization that the captain had been serious when he reeled off the charges lodged against them they had been certain it was some kind of ill-planned joke until they saw the delegation of jupiter equilateral officials waiting at the port to greet merrill tawney like a man returned from the dead they had watched tawney climb into the sleek company car and drive off toward the gate while the captain had escorted them without a word down to the internment rooms the door clicked and the captain looked in all right come along now he said is the major here tom said you'll see the major soon enough the captain herded them into another room where a clerk efficiently fingerprinted them they went down a ramp to a jittery platform and boarded a u.n official car the trip to the city was slow rush hour traffic from the port was heavy when they reached u.n headquarters there was another wait in an upper level anteroom the captain stood stiffly with his hands behind his back and ignored them this looks serious greg burst out finally we haven't done anything you haven't even let us make a statement make your statement to the major it's his headache not mine i'm happy to say but you let that man walk out of there scot-free the captain looked at him if i were you he said i'd stop complaining and start worrying if i had jupiter equilateral at my throat i'd worry plenty because once they start they don't stop a signal light blinked and he took them downstairs major briarton was behind his desk his eyes tired his face grim he dismissed the captain and motioned them to seats all right let's have the story he said and by the ten moons of saturn it had better be convincing because i've about had my fill of you three he listened without interruption as tom told the story with greg and johnny adding details from time to time tom told him everything from the moment they had blasted off for roger hunter's claim to the moment the patrol ship had boarded them except for a single detail he didn't mention the remarkable gun from roger hunter's gun case 
The gun was still in the spacer's pack he had slung over his shoulder. He had not mentioned it when the patrolmen had taken their stunners away. Now, as he talked, he felt a twinge of guilt in not mentioning it. But he had a reason. Dad had died to keep that gun secret. It seemed only right to keep the secret a little longer. When he came to the part about their weapons, he simply spoke of Dad's gun, and omitted any details. And through the story the Major listened intently, interrupting only occasionally, pulling at his lip and scowling. So we decided that the best way to convince you that we had the evidence you wanted was to bring Tawny back with us, Tom concluded. A brilliant maneuver, the Major said dryly. A real stroke of genius. But then the patrol ship intercepted us and told us we were under arrest. And when we landed, they let Tawny drive off without even questioning him. The least we could do under the circumstances, the Major said. Well, I'd like to know why, Greg broke in bitterly. Why pick on us? We've been telling you. Yes, yes, I heard every word of it. The Major sighed. If you knew the trouble, oh, what's the use? I've spent the last three solid hours talking myself hoarse, throwing in every bit of authority I could muster, and jeopardizing my position as coordinator here for the sole purpose of keeping you three idiots out of jail for a few hours. Jail? That's what I said. The brig. The place where they put people when they don't behave. You three are sitting on a nice big powder keg right now, and when it blows I don't know how much of you is going to be left. Do you think we were lying? Greg said. Do you know what you're charged with? The Major snapped back. Some sort of nonsense about piracy. Plus kidnapping, plus murder, to say nothing of totally disabling a $17 million orbit ship and placing the lives of 400 crewmen in jeopardy. The Major picked up a sheet of paper from his desk. According to Merrill Tawney's statement, the three of you hijacked a company scout ship that chanced to be scouting in the vicinity of your father's claim. Your attack was unprovoked and violent. Everybody on Mars knows you were convinced that Jupiter Equilateral was responsible for your father's death. He looked up. In the absence of any evidence, I might add, although I did my best to tell you that. He rattled the report sheet. All right. You took the scout ship by force, with the pilot at gunpoint, and made him home in on his orbit ship. Then you proceeded to reduce that orbit ship to a leaking wreck, although Tawney tried to reason with you and even offered you amnesty if you would desist. By the time the crew stopped shooting each other in the dark, fifteen of them subsequently expired. It says here, you had stolen another scout ship and kidnapped Tawney for the purpose of extorting a confession out of Jupiter Equilateral threatening him with torture if he did not comply. The Major dropped the paper to the desk. Johnny Coombs picked it up, looked at it owlishly, and put it back again. Pretty large operation for three men, Major, he said. The Major shrugged. You were armed. That orbit ship was registered as a commercial vessel. It had no reason to expect a surprise attack, and had no way to defend itself. They were armed to the teeth, Greg said disgustedly. Why don't you send somebody out to look? Oh, I could, but why waste the time and fuel? There wouldn't be any weapons aboard. Then how do you explain the fact that the scavenger was blown to bits and Dad's orbit ship ripped apart from top to bottom? Details, the Major said. Mere details. I'm sure the company's lawyers can muddy the waters quite enough so that the little details like that are overlooked, particularly with a sympathetic judge and a judge that plays along. He stood up and ran his hand through his hair. All right. 
Granted, I'm painting the worst picture possible, but I'm afraid that's the way it's going to be. I believe your story. Don't worry about that. I know why you went out there to the belt, and I can't really blame you, I suppose. But you were asking for trouble, and that's what you got. Frankly, I'm amazed that you ever returned to Mars, and how you managed to make rubble of an orbit ship with a crew of four hundred men trying to stop you is more than I can comprehend. But you did it. All right, fine, you were justified. They attacked you, held you prisoner, threatened you. Fine. They'd have cut your throats in another few hours, perhaps. Fine, I believe you. But there's one big question you can't answer, and unless you can, no court in the solar system will listen to you. What question? Tom said. The question of motives, the Major replied. You had plenty of motive for doing what Tawny says you did. But what motive did Jupiter Equilateral have if your story is true? They wanted to get what Dad found out in the belt. Ah, yes. That mysterious bonanza that Roger Hunter found. I was afraid that that's what you'd say. And it's the reason that Jupiter Equilateral is going to win this fight, and you're going to lose it. I don't think I understand, said Tom slowly. I mean that I'm going to have to testify against you, the Major said. Because your father didn't find a thing in the asteroid belt, and I happen to know it. It's been a war, the Major said later. A dirty, vicious war with no holds barred and no quarter given. Not a shooting war, of course, nothing out in the open, but a war just the same, with the highest stakes of any war in history. It didn't look like a war at first, the Major went on. Back when the colonies were being built, nobody really believed that anything of value would come of them. Scientific outposts, perhaps, places for laboratories and observatories, not much more. The colonies were placed under United Nations control. Nobody argued about it. And then things began to change. There was wealth out here, and opportunities for power. With the overpopulation at home, Earth was looking more and more to Mars and Venus for a place to move, not tiny colonies, but places for millions of people. And as Mars grew, Jupiter Equilateral grew. But it was just a mining company, Tom said. At first it was, but then its interests began to expand. The company accumulated wealth, unbelievable wealth, and it developed many friends. Soon it had friends back on Earth fighting for it, and the United Nations found itself fighting to stay on Mars. I don't see why, Tom said. The company already has half the mining claims in the belt. They aren't interested in the mining, the Major said. They have a much longer-range goal than that. The men behind Jupiter Equilateral are looking ahead. They know that someday Earthmen are going to have to go to the stars for colonies. It won't be a matter of choice after a while. They'll have to go. Well, Jupiter Equilateral's terms are very simple. They're perfectly willing to let the United Nations control things on Earth. All they want is control of everything else. Mars, if they can drive us out. Venus, too, if it ever proves up for colonies. And if they can gain control of the ships that leave our solar system for the stars, they can build an empire, and they know it. They were silent for a moment. Then Johnny Coombs said, Doesn't anybody on Earth know about this? There are some who know, but they don't see the danger. They think of Jupiter Equilateral as just another big company. So far, UN control of Mars and Venus has been held up, even though the pressure on the legislators back on Earth has been getting heavier and heavier. Jupiter Equilateral won the greatest fight in its history when they limited UN jurisdiction to Mars, and kept us out of the belt. 
and now they hope to convince the lawmakers that we're incompetent to administer the Martian colonies and keep peace out here. If they succeed, we'll be called home in nothing flat. We've had to fight just to stay. The Major spread his hands helplessly. Like I said, it's been a war. Our only hope was to prove that the company was using piracy and murder to gain control of the asteroids. We had to find a way to smash the picture they've been painting of themselves back on Earth as big, benevolent organization interested in only the best for Earth colonists on the planets. We had to expose them before they had the Earth in chains. But now, maybe not even a century from now, but sometime, years from now, when the breakthrough to the stars comes and Earthmen discover that they want to leave Earth, they have to pay toll. They could never do that, Greg protested. They're doing it, son, and they're winning. They've been searching desperately for a way to fight back. And that was where your father came in. He could see the handwriting, and he knew what was happening. That was why he broke with the company and tried to organize a competing force before it was too late. And it was why he died in the belt. He knew I couldn't send an agent out there without unquestionable evidence of major crime of some sort or another. But a private citizen could go out there. And if he happened to be working with the U.N. hand-in-glove, nobody could do anything about it. Then Dad was a U.N. agent? Oh, not officially. There's not a word in the records. If I were forced to testify under oath, I would have to deny any connection. But unofficially, he went out there to lay a trap. The Major told them then. It had been an incredible risk that Roger Hunter had taken. But the decision had been his. The plan was simple to involve Jupiter Equilateral in a case of claim-jumping and piracy that would hold up in court, pressed by a man who would not be intimidated, and could not be bought out. Roger Hunter had made a trip to the belt and come back with stories, very carefully planted in just the right ears, of a fabulous strike. He knew that Jupiter Equilateral had jumped a hundred rich claims in the past, forcing the independent miners to agree, frightening them into silence or disposing of them with accidents. But this was one claim they were not going to jump. The U.N. cooperated, helping him spread the story of his big strike, until they were certain that Jupiter Equilateral would go for the bait. Then Roger Hunter had returned to the belt, with the U.N. patrol ship close by in case he needed help. We thought it would be enough, the Major said unhappily. We were wrong, of course. At first nothing happened. Not a sign of a company ship. Nothing. Your father contacted me finally. He was ready to give up. Somehow they must have learned that it was a trap. But they had just been careful, was all. They had waited until our guard was down, and then moved in fast and hit hard. He sank down in his seat behind the desk, regarding the Hunter twins sadly. You know the rest. Perhaps you can see now why I tried to keep you from going out there. There was no proof to uncover and no bonanza load for you to find. There never was a bonanza load. The twins looked at each other, and then at the Major. "'Why didn't you tell us?' Greg said. "'Would you have listened? Would telling you have kept you from going out there? There was no point telling you. I knew you would have to find out for yourselves, however painfully. But what I'm telling you now is the truth. 